Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. This sermon was preached at the 1993 Fall Revival held at God's Bible School and College in Cincinnati, Ohio. It was preached by Daryl Stetler, and it is titled, Dealing with Sin. I trust you will enjoy this message. I so appreciate his presence and his help. And I would confess to you, I need his help more than I need anything else in all the world. <laughs> Bless his name. I appreciate the presence of the Lord. Thank you, girls, for that beautiful song, but for the spirit in which it was done as well. I appreciate that. Well, it's chapel time again, and uh, I would confess to you this morning to a great measure of trepidation as I enter into this particular message I have preached this message before, but uh, you preachers know what I'm talking about. Sometimes when you're preparing, the Lord all of a sudden begins to explode things in your mind, and uh, <clears throat> you grab a pencil and can't write fast enough, and all of a sudden the whole thing is taken, taken a direction maybe it never took before. So uh, I'm going to be feeling my way somewhat this morning, but. Several weeks ago, as I was praying about this revival and uh, the responsibilities that would be mine, I felt the Lord begin to lay a truth on my heart. Now, I'll be honest with you, when he did, I began to have great big question marks in my mind. And, uh, you know, it's one of those times where you say, now, Lord, you know that's not one of my better sermons. <laughs> and... Uh, I had a hard time preaching that one time, you know, and I, you remind the Lord of all those things, you know. But uh, I felt like the Lord would have me go to John chapter 3, as, I, as you know I have already done twice. And I feel like the Lord would have me go there again. I, uh, to be honest with you, I, I did a little searching to try to find something else this morning, but I couldn't find anything else. So here we are at John chapter 3. I know after you've looked at a passage, there's always the danger of, of boring repetition and uh, so forth, but I'll do my best to not get too far down that road. But I do feel on my heart an area that I feel is so very vital to you at this stage of your life and really to all of us. So if you'll turn to John chapter 3 once again, I want to read our passage of Scripture quickly. And, uh, and then launch right in to the thought I feel on my heart. John chapter 3 and verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Am I doing something wrong here to make that do that? All right. If I am, tell me. I'd rather know than wonder. <clears throat> I'm going to ask my brother, if he will, to stand and ask the Lord's help on this part of the service. Yes. We've been looking at what we might call the greatest text in the Bible, John chapter 3 and verse 16. I believe that here in this 16th verse, we find many of the basic doctrines of the Scripture. And as you know, we've begun with the suggestion of the text and then tried to branch out and enlarge and clarify and broaden some. Isn't it wonderful how all Scripture just fits together and amplifies and explains each other? I've, I began with the question, the, or, or the greatest reality, which is God, which leads to the greatest question, what about God in my life? We then moved on to the greatest creation, which leads to the greatest the great question, what about man? Who am I? What am I here for? What is my purpose? And of course, above all, where am I going? You know, young people, I mentioned yesterday, if you, if you live your life according to the selfish, self-glorying, self-seeking, humanistic philosophies of this world, you'll end up at the end of life like Ernest Hemingway and say life has been a dirty trick. Or life like Shakespeare who said life is a tale told by an idiot. I, I like Paul's philosophy a whole lot better, don't you? He said, for me to live is Christ. He said, uh, it is not I that liveth, but Christ that liveth in me. You know, Paul's enemies didn't know how to deal with his philosophy about life. His enemies said, we're going to persecute you. We'll put you in jail. Paul said, I count it a joy to suffer for Christ. <laughs> they said, well, we'll kill you. We'll take your life. Paul said, for me to die is gain. They didn't know how to deal with that philosophy. 
But I want to tell you, when it came down and Paul was facing the journey into eternity, I like the ending of it all, for he said, I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day. I want that to be the philosophy of my life. But I want to pose a third question for consideration this morning. I think one of the greatest questions we will ever come to grips with is the question I want to look at this morning. For it's a question that strikes at the very heart of our nature. It's a question that strikes at the very heart of the motives and actions and desires of our life. The question is, what about sin? What about sin? The greatest problem in the human family is the problem of sin. One of the greatest questions you will ever confront if you plan to end well in your life, you will have to confront the question, what about sin in my life? You know, as you look at this context, and you may say, well, preacher, where do you get sin in John chapter 3 and 16, verse 16? But you look at the context in which verse 16 is found, and you quickly see that the writer is dealing extensively with sin and its cost and its effects and its demands. The passage speaks of the death of Jesus. Verse 14, the Son of Man be lifted, being lifted up. Verse 16, God so loved that he gave his Son. Why did Jesus come into the world? Why did God give his Son? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Young people, there's only one reason, and that is because of human sin. Someone has said you can never understand the sacrifice of Jesus unless you keep it in the context in which God places it, and that is the context of human sin. You go on in this passage, and you see it's speaking of Jesus coming that the world through him might be saved. Why does the world need saved? And of course, again, he's not talking about the planet. He's talking about human beings, the human race. He's talking about you and me. Why do we need redemption? Why do we need to be saved? There's only one reason, because of the problem of sin. You look in this passage and you quickly see God speaking of the three results of sin. Verse 16, he uses the word perish. In verse 18, he uses the word condemned. In verse 19, he uses the word darkness. Young people, I want to tell you this morning, the three results of sin in your life will be darkness and condemnation and ultimately perishing. That's always the results of sin. He speaks of those who love darkness rather than light, those whose deeds are evil, those who hate the light, those who hated Jesus, for he was the light. You can quickly see this passage is dealing extensively with sin. And while God created man holy in the beginning, and man still has the capacity for holiness, I think we need to rediscover that in our generation. Though man fell, though he was infected with sin, man still has the capacity for holiness. I'm glad that that's so. The fact is man fell. He lost God's smile. He, he uh, saw the image of God to be marred in his life. He rebelled. He lost fellowship. He lost the approval of God. 
until young people may I say it like this since the fall of Adam the most dominating factor in man's nature is a bent towards sinning it is a sinful corruption a depraved nature a rebellious bent a sinful principle the most dominating factor in the nature of the human race is the sinful principle but we could go one step further and say that outside of God's grace, the most dominating factor in your life will be the principle of sin. You know, as you think about the direction of your life and, and where you're going to end up and what you're going to do, you're here in Bible school trying to cultivate your strengths and learn from your weaknesses and develop your talents and learn in your mind and all of that is as it ought to be but young people may I tell you this morning when you get out there in the workaday world and that even in the kingdom of God the most dominating thing in your life will not be your training or not be your assets unless you let God take charge of your life the most dominating and controlling factor of your life will be the nature of sin that's why it's so vital you come to grips with the problem of sin in your life Outside of grace, the most dominating factor is sin. Now, I'm going to improve this in just a moment. You stay with me, okay? Things will look brighter in just a moment. <laughs> I know that we like to deal with subjects like Jesus and love and salvation and forgiveness and heaven and joy and all of those things and I love to preach on those things but friends may I tell you this morning you will never know Jesus unless you deal with the sin of your heart salvation the very message of my text the love of God the gift of God the redeeming grace of God is all focused on the issue of dealing with sin in my life it's not just a beautiful story. It's not just a theological system. The plan of redemption is focused upon the human heart and the needs of the human heart. God loves us so much he sent Jesus. Why did he do it? To deal with our sin. Salvation is never found outside of coming face to face in a personal confrontation with the sin of my life. Forgiveness is the result of facing my sin. You know, I think we've, we've lost that, friends. We've reached the point until many times an experience of saving grace is either on an intellectual plane or on an emotional plane. Until it's either a little system of answering a few questions and bingo, I'm a Christian, or it's an emotional experience where we have an emotional high and bingo, I'm a Christian. Friend, may I tell you, I know there's emotion involved and I know there is must be a, a mental attitude and, and mental understanding to a degree. But friends, I want to tell you that salvation is focused on dealing with the sin in my life and any experience that does not deal with the sin of my life is not authentic. It's not scriptural. We'll never make heaven unless we deal with sin one of the first things you and I must face and come to grips with are the issues of sin you know that's why God says he sent his Holy Spirit into the world what is the first thing he says in the scripture to reprove the world of sin 
God sent Jesus to save. He sent Jesus to provide a remedy, a means of salvation, to be a sacrifice for my sin. And then he sends his spirit to convince me I need a savior to point out my sin, to enlighten my sin until I become aware of it. And you know, young people, God very often through the ministry of the Holy Spirit will use a service just like this one, a revival just like this one, a preacher like me or a teacher like your teacher or the example of another student. He uses all kinds of means and methods, but he's bringing into focus the inner needs of my life, the inner issues of my soul. Why is he doing it? So he can deal with them adequately. God uses his spirit and when God's Holy Spirit comes, I want to tell you that man in his sinful condition and with a sinful principle does not just passively take the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. No, this passage says man resists all of that. Did you see that in this passage? He loves darkness rather than light. Why? Because of evil deeds. He resists the dealings of the Holy Spirit. This passage declares the wonderful message, light is coming to the world. That is a wonderful message. God has sent the light of redeeming grace to shine into the darkness of sin. But God says here in this passage, men hate the light and love the darkness because of evil deeds. Sinful man loves the darkness and hates the light. Isn't that amazing? God wants to dispel the darkness of man's sin, but man controlled by sin resists and rejects and despises the light and rather seeks out darkness. May I be faithful to you young people and, and I, I say again, I understand that I'm being just a little bit negative at this point. But may I be faithful to your soul and to my responsibility to you to tell you that you will never find the wonderful victory in your life that you want and you long for and you desire until you come face to face and confront the sin of your heart and allow the blood of Jesus Christ to deal with it and cleanse it. Much of the church world today has built their basic doctrines around an accommodation of the sinful practices and nature of men. An accommodation. The church and the ministry today have so watered down and rationalized and re reasoned away the reality of sin and the necessity of being delivered from sin. You know, there are three basic areas, and I, I want to look at it just for a little while, and I'm plowing some new ground at this point. You be patient with me. There are three basic ways that the devil uses in our society to keep us from confronting sin. First of all, the devil will try to convince us to hide it. Or he will try to convince us to excuse it. Or he will try to convince us to redefine it. One of the three. You know, the devil has invented a million excuses the devil has invented a million ways to hide sin. And, and that's, that's the thrust of this message. Men love darkness rather than light. Why? They want to cover. They want to hide. They want to not have sin exposed. You know, sin can be hid in some of the most amazing places. Sin can be hid under a shout. Did you know that? 
I'll never forget when I was a student at God's Bible school, there was a boy, and please don't misunderstand me, I love the shouts of God's people, and please don't let that water it down in any way. I want you to give in to the praises of God. But there was a boy that was the loudest prayer and the loudest shouter in the school. Do you know it, it came to light one day he was living in sin? Sin can be hid beneath. Sin can be hid behind a radical stand against sin. That's what David did, you remember? David sinned an awful sin, and one day he thought he had his tracks well covered, and one day the prophet Nathan came and told David a little story. He said there was a poor man out here that only had a single lamb to his name. That was all of his possessions. There was a wealthy man that had flocks innumerable, and the wealthy man had company come, and instead of taking from the vastness of his flocks, he went and took the, the lamb from the poor man that that was all he had, and he dressed that lamb and fixed it for his company. David's righteous indignation was, was kindled. He squared his shoulders and with fire coming out of his eyes, he said to Nathan the prophet, show me the man and he'll be slain. That's a pretty radical stand against sin, isn't it? But all of a sudden, his ardor melted when the prophet pointed his finger at David and said, you're the man, David. Sin can be hid beneath a pious pretense. That was the case with King Saul when he disobeyed the Lord and brought back the flocks and Samuel questioned him about it and Saul said, I have saved the best of the flocks. Why? To sacrifice unto the Lord. Sin can be hidden beneath. Sin can be hidden behind good giving. You ever read about Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts? They sold their property and why we are making a show of giving everything to the Lord. And yet beneath it was the corruption of sin. Sin can be dealt with by hiding. The next modern way of dealing with sin is excusing. You know, the devil has produced a million ways to excuse sin. He really has. You know, the modern way of facing sin is, I'm guilty, but it's not my fault. Isn't it? You follow the court systems in our land. I'm guilty, but it's not my fault. A vast majority of the defenses of criminals in our society takes that turn. I'm guilty, but it's not my fault. We found a thousand ways a thousand ways to blame sin on everything but its real cause. This, this excusing sin is age old. It's as old as the human race. You remember in the book of Genesis, God approached Adam and Adam said, the wife you gave me. God approached Eve and she said, the serpent beguiled me. What were they saying? Yeah, I did it, but it's not my fault. You know, sin is blamed on mom and dad. Sin is blamed on husband or wife. Sin is blamed on the, on the church and the hypocrites. And I'm amazed, Brother England, sometimes sin is blamed on the preacher. It's his fault. <laughs> or the teacher. Or the dean. <laughs> it's their fault. Sin is blamed on circumstances. Sin is blamed on social class. 
Sin is blamed on upbringing, you know. My parents wouldn't let me have the kind of cereal I wanted when I was two years old, and it warped me. You know, they messed up when they potty trained me, and it's given me a quirk in my personality ever since. <laughs> sin is blamed on disease. You know, sin, we've even reached the point in our society where sin is blamed on the genes and chromosomes. And do you know where we've come to at that point when we say, I was just born this way? You know what we're really saying? It's God's fault. He did it to me. It's God's fault. It's not my, I'm guilty, but it's not my fault. God did this to me. Sin is excused. Maybe the most dangerous dealing with sin while some would try to hide it, others would try to excuse it, maybe the most dangerous dealing with sin is the effort to redefine sin. I read a statement some time ago that said something like this. Preachers are still against sin in these days. They're just no longer sure what qualifies. You know, that's about where we stand, isn't it? We've redefined and redefined and retooled and reworked and, and redefined some more and moved God's lines so many times until we don't know where we're at. Young people, that is a mental game that if you begin to play at this juncture in your life, you have no idea where you'll end up 10 years, 25 years from today. What really happens is this. God draws a line. In his word, God draws a line. But we don't like the line. So what do we do? We just step a little ways over the line. Not too far, you know, just, just a little ways. And then we draw ourselves a line. We, we redraw the line. You parents know that this is a very prevalent thing we have to deal with in our small children. Isn't that so? We draw a line for our kids and we say, no further. And so they'll just inch over the line a little bit and quickly draw another line. What are they doing? They're redefining our line. <laughs> Friends, may I say that when God draws a line, it's a dangerous thing to play with that line. It's a deadly thing to redefine that line. It is a spiritually deadening and destroying thing to, to change where God draws his line. I see Brother Cressy back there. I believe you're a dean of students, isn't that right? You know, every dean of students at a Bible school knows that students do the very same thing. The line is drawn, but they'll inch over the line and try to draw another one and see if you go along. And if you go along, you know what they'll do? They'll step over that line and draw another. And if you go along again, they'll, draw, they'll step over that line and draw another. 
Friends, that's where we are in the church world today. We have moved over the line and drawn another and moved over the line and drawn another until one day we find ourselves so far from God's original line, we don't even recognize it. You say, preacher, can you give me some examples of that? Let me try. For really, I think an example is worth a thousand words. Let's draw God's line at a Christ-like spirit. We could use many scriptures, but let's just throw one out. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I think that covers the principle, don't you? Of a Christ-like spirit. Is there ever a time when it's legitimate to show an unchrist-like spirit? Is there? Are there circumstances that make it okay to show an unchrist-like spirit? I can tell you're thinking the way you're looking at me. <laughs> One fellow said it got so quiet, you hear the multiplying of the dander, if you know. <laughs> so God's line is a Christ-like spirit, but maybe circumstances arise that are not conducive to a Christ-like spirit. So all of a sudden we inch over the line and we become critical and fault-finding and ugly and mean and judgmental and get even. But do you know what sometimes happens? We draw another line that says, but I was standing for right. I was right in this circumstance. I was standing for truth. Wait a minute, friends. Is it legitimate to show an unchristlike spirit so I can stand for truth? What is that? That's a redefining. That's a drawing of the line in a different place. We better be careful. Let me try again. Let's take the, let's take the sin of pride. Carnal pride. You know, God says some very severe things about pride, doesn't he? God says, I hate the proud. Boy, that's strong language. Pride, carnal pride. I know, and I could get in trouble here. We, we can sometimes differentiate between a normal thankfulness and self-respect and all of that. I understand that. But I'm talking about the sin of pride. God draws the line. If you have questions about where that, where that and how that is applied in your life, you be honest with the Lord and ask him and he'll show you. He will. But the line is pride. But we say, uh, is there ever a time when it's legitimate? Let's just imagine Let's just imagine, and I do a lot of singing, do a lot of preaching. We sang, I think I told you the other night, a couple of years ago, we sang over 800 times in one year. So I'm going to sing a song. I'm going to be on stage, brother. Is there ever a time when it's legitimate to draw attention to myself when I sing that song? Now, I know I'm getting into an area of motive. I can't read your motives, and you can't read mine. But I want to tell you, God does.
You know, I'm, and, and I think Brother Wolf would agree with me 100% at this point. And I, I, I would express publicly my deep admiration and respect for Brother Wolf and the job he's doing in the music department. And, and, but I think Brother Wolf would, would agree with me when I say, we in the holiness movement have very rapidly moved from singing to the glory of God and a mere performance on a stage. And if we're not very careful, all we've done is inched over a line and drawn another one when it comes to personal carnal pride in what I'm doing. Let's use another one. I'm going to get in deeper. You pray for me. I'm talking about dealing with sin. How do you deal with it? Do you hide it? Do you excuse it? Do you redefine it? Let me get in once. Dare I do this, brother? <laughs> yeah, brother Wolf says you're in pretty deep. Just go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that encouragement, here's the plunge. <laughs> let's talk for a moment about, uh, let's talk about jewelry. Do you know there's a lot of redefining when it comes to Christian standards, holiness standards? Let's talk about jewelry for just a moment. What does God say about jewelry? Let me read it to you. Just one passage. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3. Peter says, who's adorning? Let it not be with the outward adorning of plaiting of hair or wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. The NIV reads it like this. Your beauty should not come from outward adorning, such as the braiding of hair or the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be like the, <clears throat> be that your inner self, the un, your inner self, the unfolding of beauty of the gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, let me just say this. Every holiness church that I'm aware of at one time said that God forbid the wearing of jewelry for adornment. But what has happened? We've said we live in a modern day. There are some symbolic things in jewelry. You say, now, preacher, are you saying that in that passage, God forbids the wearing of gold jewelry, as the NIV calls it? You know what we have said in our generation? We have said God's not forbidding. He's just saying use moderation. Isn't that what we've said? I think it is. But is that what God says? Look at the construction he uses in these verses. Not with the outward adorning, but the hidden man of the heart. Do you see that? Not, but. Does that mean partially? Does that mean moderation? Is that what that means? Let's look at Peter for a moment real quickly. If you have your Bible, you ought to circle these in your Bible. Look in chapter 1 and verse 14. 
He says in chapter 1 and verse 14, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you as holy, so be ye holy. Does that construction in that, is Paul saying, uh, you know, fashion yourselves moderately like your old former lust, but, but partially you ought to be holy. That's not what he's saying. Look on down in verse 23. He says, being born not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. Is Paul or Peter saying, I am born partially of corruptible seed or in a moderate way, in a, in a partial sense, but mostly I'm, I'm incorruptible seed? No. He is ruling out one in favor of the other. He is ruling out one totally in favor of the other. You follow through. I'm not going to take time to do it. Paul uses exactly the same construction dealing with jewelry as he does corruptible seed and incorruptible seed. And he does it many times in his epistles. Verse 10 of chapter 2, he does it. In verse 9 of chapter 3, he does it again. In verse 21 in chapter 3, he does it again. In verse uh, 2 in chapter 5, he does it again. He does it in, in the second Peter. And every time in Peter's epistles when he says not, but he's not talking about in a moderate way or in a, in a partial sense, he's ruling out one totally in favor of the other. I don't think I'm stepping out on thin ice, Brother England, to say that when God says not with wearing of gold jewelry, he means not with the wearing of gold jewelry. I don't think I'm on a, a shaky foundation. I really don't. But we didn't like God's line. And so we inched over the line and said there's some symbolic jewelry. And so we drew another line. Until, friends, we've moved that line so far. Until to be intellectually honest with ourselves, we have had to say, jewelry's not an issue anymore. Isn't that right? I'm in so deep, I might as well go on. Let's talk about hair for a moment. What does God say about hair? He does say something. Doesn't he? Sure he does. Let me read to you the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14. I want to read this from the NIV as well. He says it like this. Paul says, Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman have long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. So God's drawn his line. Now again, may I say, every holiness denomination that I'm aware of one day said that that passage meant uncut hair for women. Now, to be honest and to be fair, that statement is true, isn't it? But we didn't like the line. And so we inched over it and said, I'll trim it. I didn't cut it, I just trimmed it. I never have figured that out. So we redrew the line. Young people, may I say it like this? And I know I'm getting in deep at this point. I'm, I'm losing some of you. But maybe I'll get you back before it's over. <laughs> you know, God's Bible school has a rule against cutting your hair, girls. Yes, it does. 
And if you did the same thing that I did when you registered, you signed a slip of paper, you'd keep those rules. You say, but preacher, I don't agree with that. I wasn't raised that way. Girls, that's not the issue. And so you inch over the line and say, I didn't cut my hair, I just trimmed it. And you've redrawn the line. I have a hard time seeing how you're going to have good spiritual victory. Signing your name saying, I'll keep the rules, and then not doing it. Whether it's that or something else. Young people, I'm simply saying, if we redraw the lines in our life, whatever it is, we will get ourselves in spiritual hot water. And eventually, we'll find ourselves out in a spiritual no man's land where we have no idea what we believe or why we believe it or where we are. We'll have no earthly idea. We've redrawn so many lines until we don't know where, what's truth and what's right. Young people don't find consolation in the fact that you can say, I've not broken a rule if you've just redefined the rule. You know, the net result of all of this, hiding sin or excusing sin or redefining sin, the net result, what does that produce? It produces people that have never come to grips with their own sin. It produces those who have grown careless and complacent about their unrighteousness. It produces people that are fighting a losing battle against the sin that has brought guilt in their soul. It produces those who are struggling, who have never come to grips and never, never dealt with pride with all of its manifestations or envy or greed or jealousy or hatred or bitterness or unforgiveness. It produces those who have never faced lust, who have never come to grips with a love for the world, who have never come to grips with evil speaking, who have never faced the sin of self-centeredness and selfishness, who have never faced squarely a get-even spirit or lying or cheating or stealing or any other sin you want to name, have never come to grips with it and never faced it squarely and never confessed to the bottom of their soul and dealt with the issues that have bothered them and brought them spiritual defeat. Young people, the devil doesn't want you to come face to face with your sin. He'll do anything he can. He'll use any method he can to keep you from going to the bottom of your soul and confessing to the bottom of your soul and facing squarely the issues that have troubled me and kept me in spiritual clouds and darkness. Until, well, let me say it like this. It doesn't matter, young people, how many trips you make to an altar if you never face squarely the issues of your heart. It doesn't matter how much you can pray and how wonderful your emotional high was, if you have never faced squarely the issues of your soul, you will not make heaven. It doesn't matter even how much you may line up in an outward way and do all the things that people expect of you if you have never come to grips with the inner, re the inner corruption of your own soul. You will miss heaven, though you may even look like a Christian on the outside. You say, well, preacher, can you give me a, can you give me a ray of hope before you quit? I'm glad I can. <laughs> 
You know why? This passage says, light is come into the world. Light is come into the darkness. Oh, I'm glad that light is shown in to the darkness. I'm glad for a day when light shone into the darkness of my own soul. And I realized there was a cure and there was a remedy for the evil and corruption of my heart. Oh, I thank God the message of this passage doesn't leave us struggling with sin. It doesn't leave us in the bondage of sin. I want to tell you, though man fell, he is still capable of holiness. I read that passage in Romans chapter 5 and verse 19. By the disobedience of one, many were made sinners. But by the obedience of one, many shall be made righteous. You go on to verse 20 in that passage, and it declares and trumpets forth that wonderful message. For where sin did abound, grace does much more. It superabounds. Young people, I want to tell you this, this morning chapel service, if you come to grips and face squarely the issues of your soul, God in heaven, heaven will forgive every transgression and cleanse from your heart the nature of sin. You don't have to go on with those problems in your heart. There's wonderful deliverance. There's glorious deliverance. There, you don't have to try to play games. You don't have to play mental gymnastics. You don't have to cover it over. You don't have to slobber over it. You can come square. I know it's not fun sometimes, but come square face to face with the issues of your heart and deal with them as God wants you to deal with them and have a sky blue experience of grace. Young people, if somehow God could help some of you right here in this chapel service to come to that place where I face squarely the issues God has dealt with and I have come clean and I know forgiveness I know wonderful forgiveness every sin is forgiven every sin is in the sea of God's forgiveness I know cleansing I know a sanctified heart I know a pure motive I know the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ God's son oh I'm glad to tell you that can be so don't overlook facing the issues of your heart Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. i